This is Aliens and Artists, part one of our conversation with Leslie Kane. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. Leslie is a New York Times bestselling author of UFOs and also the book and Netflix series, Surviving Death. We explore her profound personal experience being with abduction researcher Bud Hopkins through his dying process. But first, her groundbreaking work with the New York Times. The work in the Times actually began in December of 2017. So it's been a little more than three years that we actually did our first story. Um, and I think that was a major turning point. I mean, it was. I don't, I don't just think it. I know it in terms of um, the significance that the issue has in, at higher levels. Um, the release of the videos that came with those stories was really important. The fact that we revealed that there was an official program within the DOD that had been in operation since 2007 was a huge deal because it adds credibility to the phenomenon and it shows the reality of the phenomenon because we have videos, because the Department of Defense has been studying it. They're not gonna be wasting their time on something that's not legitimate. And so what that does is it gives the status quo, the policymakers, the people, that really impact how things evolve, it gives them permission to take it seriously. And it adds great credibility to the topic. And so there was sort of this, uh, you know, change that began with those with that story. And there, it's been building momentum ever since. I mean, there's been a lot of things that have happened. We've done other stories, but there have been a lot of events and, and statements that have been made by high-level people. And there's just this buildup of, of added authority, you know, authoritative commentary on this. Briefings from Senate Intelligence Committees. And the big deal is this report that was requested by uh, the chairman of the Senate Select, Intelli Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, which was just passed in a bill in December and is supposed to be produced in June, a report by the current program uh, you know, gathering data from lots of different government agencies and putting out some kind of report with information for the public, and then it will include a, a classified portion as well. And this was supposed to be happening in June. It looks like now it's going to be delayed, but there's a lot of buildup and excitement and anticipation towards that report and what it might reveal, and we just don't know at this point. So anyway, there's a kind of like we're on this kind of ride now of greater focus, greater attention, greater credibility. And it feels like things are building and it feels like more and more things are gonna come out about UFOs. Uh, and it's an exciting time in that way. So we do hope to keep reporting for the New York Times about your question about whether that's difficult. It's very difficult, very difficult. Even though Ralph and I may feel this is a story, this is important, getting something by the editors at the Times is a hard job. Uh, you know, they we have to really convince them of you know of a story that, and they may have different ideas than we do. And it's just hard to get through editors at the New York Times. And then when you do get your story accepted, there's a long editorial process. So it's not like you know I see all these bloggers going out with great stories that they can put out in a day. Uh, unfortunately, at the New York Times, we don't have that up. We don't have the choice about doing that. So we have to do kind of deeper stories that take more time to create, and we have less opportunities to do that. But when we do it, it has a big impact. So that's the trade-off. 
Has it gotten easier in any way as the succession of articles came out? Was there more latitude granted as you went deeper into the subject? I don't know. I would have to say probably it hasn't changed. I think part of that is because maybe for the second story, which we were still, Ralph and I were still working with Helene Cooper at that time, who was you know, this very well-respected Pentagon reporter who's on full-time staff at the New York Times. And um, <clears throat> our third story was more controversial and it did not include Helene. And that was the one that dealt with the question of, of physical materials and crash retrievals. That one was very difficult. So I think every story is kind of its own independent entity, really. Both, yeah, both Ralph and I are freelance contributors to the Times, which is very different than being on the staff too. So it's it's never easy. What's typically the biggest sticking point? Is there some territory in these articles that elicits the greatest resistance in the editorial process? What is the most contentious item in that mix? Well, it's hard to say, and I can't talk too much about the internal process that we have at the Times and, you know, our our communications with our editors are very sensitive. So it's not something I can talk a lot about, but let's just to say that any statements which cannot be uh, backed up, you know, that might be, uh, you know, even a statement. Yeah, it's just it's just very tricky. I mean, the, the, the Times has rigorous requirements for corroboration, for factual backup to any statements that are made. And so even if something might be in an official document or a let's say a briefing document uh, that might have been used by the program, say. Even something in there, if it's not clearly spelled out, if it's not strong enough, if it's not factual enough, uh, that's the problem for the editors. So they're just, and I respect the rigor that they have. I think that the stories are, you know, benefit from that kind of scrutiny. But sometimes Ralph and I will think that something is really important and the editor won't agree with us. And ultimately the editor has the final say. And we usually come around feeling gratitude and feeling that they, you know, have a very good perspective. And we want our stories to be, be able to appeal to, to people that have the same kinds of attitudes that the editors do. So it's all good. Sometimes we wish we had more space to write longer stories and provide more detail. And that's always something every writer wants. So, you know, there's, there's always issues, but ultimately I think we come out with really good stories that have a big impact and that's, what's important. Does it make you nostalgic at all for times where perhaps journalistic standards were higher, more universal? Now you're held to those high principles, whereas the rest of the 24 hour news cycle and blogosphere is free to run a fire hose of specious drivel. It's really an, an interesting world right now and very disturbing in the ways that you describe. And I guess that's one reason why I'm glad we are writing for the New York Times, because even though the Times is, is, is another paper that has its own perspective, of course, I'm not saying it's, there's no bias in the reporting in the New York Times, but it's, it's a paper that's regarded so highly that I'm glad that that's our platform. I mean, I really wouldn't want to report anywhere else. Uh, and so, you know, both Ralph and I are willing to go through the difficulties that are required because, yeah, you can go on Fox News or, you know, CNN and do a three-minute interview with some, with a host. And yeah, it has, a, it has an impact. But you're right. It's in the milieu of this sort of chaos of the, of the uh, news world right now. And so, 
Yeah, I mean, that's a problem. And a lot of people don't like the New York Times who have who are very, you know, conservative in their views, though they think the New York Times is a left-wing, you know, tabloid or something. So every every news source is tainted in some way these days. But of all the ones that I would ever want to write for, it would be the Times. And um, that's why Ralph and I are not jumping off into setting up our own blog or something like that, because <clears throat> we recognize the impact and the value of reporting for a paper like that, especially now in this crazy world we live in. When your book UFOs came out, there was a resounding enthusiasm and coverage from all kinds of sources and platforms, lots of coverage. So you've experienced both sides of this equation, writing for the New York Times, but also doing the intense publicity circuit with cable shows, etc., promoting that book. Did promoting that book across such a variety of outlets increase your appreciation of going to work with the Times in 2017? Did the contrast between the Times approach versus that of others amplify your regard for the Times? Yeah, I mean, it definitely, I, it was like, it's a reporter, it was my dream, a reporter's dream, right, is to get a story on the front page of the New York Times. I mean, you couldn't ask for anything more, in my opinion. And to have it be about UFOs, it's something I never imagined would ever happen, and that I could be part of something like that. So, uh, yes, but I also will have to say that I don't think really most of the reporting that I did prior to the New York Times was necessarily not up to their standard. I think my book was extremely well received by high levels and made a big effect. So, yeah, there's a, there's a certain rigor that happens at the Times, but I always, throughout the 20 years in which I was reporting on this, published in a lot of different mainstream papers with editors and always tried to you know hold myself to a high standard in terms of the reporting. I misspoke. I wasn't referring to your reporting. I was referring to what it was like to take that high caliber reporting in UFOs into the brouhaha of the publicity circuit in that firehose of specious mayhem. I'm wondering if that left you feeling punch drunk at all or what was it like? You mean right right when the book came out? Yes. Yeah, because um, I wasn't I guess I wasn't clear what you were saying before. Um, <clears throat> actually, I mean. I really enjoyed that because for me to be able to present this topic in the credible way that I felt it needed to be presented and to have the opportunity to go out and do that on mainstream media, to me, it was just a gift to be able to do that. I mean, it was sometimes nerve wracking and people were so receptive. I mean, all the news anchors were respectful, receptive. There was no ridicule happening. It was just like this breakthrough moment. And the book became a New York Times bestseller within a couple of weeks of its being released, I think partly because of all the exposure it got. The, the, the most important one for me being when I was on the Colbert Report, and I don't know how many younger people out there watched that this when he was still on Comedy Central, but it was an absolutely incredible show that he did. And being on that show was like no experience I've ever had with media before and probably never will be. It was so challenging and so exciting. So that is something I would never feel like was a problem. I mean, it was absolutely incredible to me to be invited to be on that show. So to me, it was all a positive journey. And the joy of getting this word out in the way that I wanted to get it out, to be able to give expression to it in the way that I felt it needed to be expressed and needed to be conveyed to people was just a wonderful, wonderful thing for that I felt, you know, that I was able to do. And 
continue to do. But it, there was especially a very exciting period of time in, in August of 2010, right after the book came out, when there's a lot of that going on. And yeah, it was like, um, it was a major jump in the same way that being in the New York Times is, was a major jump in 2017. Both of those were big turning points for me. UFOs on the front page of the New York Times. Serious treatment, no snark. I was trying to conjure an equivalent moment from my lifetime. <laughs> Maybe the Berlin Wall falling. <laughs> That's obviously a bit apples and oranges, but what they have in common is that holy shit feeling. Something happened that I never imagined would happen. The Berlin Wall came down. Then the New York Times put UFOs on the front page and it's serious coverage. Were you floating a few feet off the ground for days and weeks after that? What did it feel like for you and Ralph? Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't thinking about the Berlin Wall, I have to say. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> and of course, a lot of people don't care at all about UFOs. I think those of us involved forget that. To us, it's like the most momentous thing there is. A lot, a lot of people are completely uninterested in it. Hard to believe, right? Anyway, um, it was, I mean, it was a really, really exciting. I mean, it was almost like a shock to the system, you know, to actually, I remember because the last, at the last moment when we were just ready to launch the story, which meant that someone at the New York Times had to press the button for it to go online because it was online before it was out in the, in the print edition. I mean, it was the online edition that was important. I think that one came out on the 16th, actually, uh, with the videos. We had gotten word that Politico was, was also trying to do the same story. I mean, they didn't have what we had. I, we knew that. They didn't have interviews with Harry Reid and Robert Bigelow, and I don't think they had anywhere near the detail we had, but we didn't know. We just knew they were, they were competing, and they were about to launch the story at the same moment we were. And even if our story was more detailed and more, you know, had more to offer than theirs, whoever goes out first is a big deal on the internet, just the way the news cycle works. You got to be the first one if you're break, otherwise you're not breaking the story. So the last minute, you know, we, we knew, and I, I guess I won't tell how, but we knew that they were about to press that button. And we were like panicking on the phone, just launch the story, launch the story, hurry up. You know, it was like this terrifying moment that they, but Politico, after all this work, Politico was going to get the first hit. And so I remember they, they put the story up and literally within minutes of our launching it, Politico launched theirs. <laughs> so oh it was God. like, yeah, literally, oh. it was like really uh, intense, really, really intense. And of course, I, I, I mean, I'm not knocking Politico. They're a great news organization, but they did not have the content that we had. But even so, if they had been first, it would have been not cool. So, you know, it's that kind of stress and, and intensity and excitement. It would have been like a movie, you know, something you see in a movie, that, that those final moments. So that was really, really amazing. And then I think I remember that the thing went out and then I think within an hour or something, we were getting requests from media for interviews and stuff like that. I mean, it was massive when it went out. It was just a massive explosion. And yeah, it was exciting. It was overwhelming. It was uh, shocking you know, fantastic. What can I say? And life-changing for all of, I think for me and Ralph, I mean, Helene Cooper was fantastic. Our colleague at the times, we could not have done the story without her. She's not as invested in the topic as Ralph and I are, but she did, you know, she was absolutely crucial to reporting on that story. And she was also along for the ride with us. And we had a great time. 
It was life-changing for many people in the broader culture. I believe my experience could be extrapolated and multiplied by tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. People, experiencers, who've had anomalous, non-ordinary events, encounters, those people and experiences being regarded quizzically at best, derisively at worst, the taboo, the stigma. But the day that article came out in the New York Times, we experiencers began to hear from people who saw that article, and it shifted the phenomenon from folly to legitimacy. How many experiencers have you heard from who just wanted to say thank you for changing the conversation? The reality status of this mystery has moved. Right. Well, I'm just so glad that it had that impact, you know, in the world of the experiencers, because I, I guess I really didn't know that it did have that kind of impact. I mean, I know, I, I mean, I've heard from some, actually, I have some close friends who are experiencers. So they were thrilled with it. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm so glad that it could have that ripple effect into the world uh, which uh, the experiencers inhabit, which of course is so much more difficult to get recognition for. And it's so much more difficult to write about and talk about. And, you know, I think the next step that's sort of going to evolve with all of this is for that realm to become more integrated. I mean, that's one of my goals is to learn how to better integrate the more, let's just use the word, you know, paranormal or experiential or whatever consciousness connected effects of these objects or however you want to say it, you know, it's a broad range of sort of experiential phenomena that go along with the UFO phenomena and which I've been reporting on only physically, only as these physical objects in the sky with radar and all this data and yeah, we got to take them seriously and they're real and they affect national security and yeah, there are these things flying around up there. So next step is how do they impact people? You know, we can't answer questions like who's driving them and all the questions everybody wants to know, where are they from? But we can, we do have data and we have people like you and so many others who have been directly impacted by them. And so I think this is sort of where it has to move now. And that's one thing I'm really interested in exploring with Jeff Kripal and with lots of other people is is there a way that this can be integrated into a level of reporting in which it is no longer considered fringe or weird or looked down on by people and just considered sort of nuts? It needs to happen. And I think Ralph Blumenthal's book on John Mack is contributing to that evolution. I'm intending to have some meetings and discussions over time that will, I hope will inform me further. And we just have to find a way to make that happen. And to bring it in in such a way that it it's evidential, you know, that it's, you know, things like military people who have had these encounters or experiences and multi, or with maybe with others who witnessed the same thing or had the same experience. You, know, you start with the very evidential cases that relate to a, that might be related to a physical sighting of a UFO in a very credible scenario with very credible people, kind of work your way in terms of what, what I can do, you know, as, as a reporter, I mean, there's obviously a lot more that other people can do, countless books on it and so on. But anyway, so I'm really interested in trying to find a way to bring that into the bigger discussion, but we've always had to wait for the right time for that. I mean, I've been interested in this aspect of it for a long time, but I recognize that there is absolutely no way it could come into any kind of serious reporting if I'm just dealing with what I used to call UFO 101, which was Hey guys, these things are real. 
here's what you need to know to get that. But yeah, they really do exist. I mean, I spent 10 years. I mean, one of the themes of my book in 2010 was just to make that very point. Hey, these things are real. They exist. Here's the data. I think what's really happened since 2017 is that is no longer, that's been proven basically. That is no longer a discussion point anymore about whether they're real or not. But until that time, even that was still a discussion point. And so before you even get the sort of acknowledgement that they're, they even exist and that they're real, they're a real phenomenon, you cannot jump into the realm of experiences that people have. It would just uh, you know, send everybody running, running out of the room who's even willing to consider this. So anyway, I'm going on and on, but since 2017, I think we are now no longer having to prove that they're real. They have been accepted as real. So one of the goals of my book, I think was took 10 years, was achieved. And so now that we know that, we can gradually shift into expanding the conversation, I hope, and I would like to, into these more, the realms of, of how they affect people. That's the way I would paraphrase it. Rather than saying experiences, I would say, how do, the, how do, how do UFOs impact human beings? And that would be a question that maybe could be addressed if I could figure out a way to do it. It's powerful and profoundly beautiful to hear you relate this emergent landscape and why it's happening now, not 10 years ago. It's easy for those of us who've long been navigating this labyrinth to forget that much of the world is unacquainted with it. We've seen how in the past the stigma has destroyed lives of those who came forward, their careers, their families. But I share your detection of a shift now. Ralph's new book on John Mack, The Believer, is a great example of that tone modulating. That's in the show notes, by the way. I want to ask you about this migration we're making from these unidentified objects to how those objects impact our subjects, our subjectivity. Specifically, there's a curious pattern we see among researchers increasingly. Later in life, they come forward as experiencers. Yep. Robert Hastings, who did a half a century of work on UFOs and nuclear weapons, nuclear installations, for example, has come forward saying he's been an experiencer all along. He knew if he came out with that earlier, it would undermine his important research. So, when I tracked you moving from the rigorous old school journalism of UFOs to your work with Surviving Death, where you've stepped into being in the project, being one of the featured participants. What moved you to do so? Yeah, I mean, and I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I also think somehow that's going to help move me towards what we were just talking about. There's a way to put all of this together, which I haven't quite figured out how to do yet as a journalist, but I'm learning more about that. So surviving death was... Um, it was a major a major change for me because not only am I exploring this question of what the evidence is for the survival of consciousness past death and doing that in a very research-oriented way, I also included a lot of my own personal experiences in that book because one of the ways to find out about the evidence is to jump in and test it for yourself, which, and there are ways you can do that with this body of work, which you can't do with UFOs. You can't call in a UFO, you know, you just, you don't have a choice about it. So I did, I jumped into this world of consciousness and um, 
did not know what was going to happen. And how I got into it really was that I have been interested in that for a long time, all throughout the time that I was, or at least I'd say many of the years of the later years of, well, maybe 15 years or so that I was involved with reporting on UFOs. In the background, I was exploring this, this topic off and on and was really curious about it. And it all started with me reading some of the work of Ian Stevenson, uh, the, the psychiatrist from the University of Virginia, who had documented for decades, documented cases of small children who remember past lives and then the, the memories are verified. And I found that to be because it was so kind of factual and, and nuts and bolts, you know, here's what they said and here's what they found afterwards. It was very black and white. Then, um, so, you know, and I, I, I was very curious about physical mediumship where these, these really, you know, dramatic physical events occur that are never supposed to be able to happen. All of these things just really intrigued me. And then I was very close to Bud Hopkins for many years towards the end of his life. And I was involved with the, the pro his process of leaving this earth. I was his main support person throughout his death. And it was, you know, he had cancer. So it was all very conscious for him. He was in hospice. There was the whole process of conscious dying that I went through with him, which really impacted me. And I was very impacted by that moment of when he took his last breath of, of being there. At this moment in our conversation, as Leslie was recounting being with Bud Hopkins as he took his last breath, the call dropped out. We reconnected and continued, both having entertained the thought that maybe it was Bud saying hello. Well, maybe it was Bud. Maybe. It did occur to me. You know? Hey, I'm, yeah. Okay, that's so interesting. So, starting to talk about how surreal it was. That's what I went on to say. Yes. How comprehensible it is to have somebody present and then gone. But it's only, I think it's only something that, I mean, I, we can, we can, I can pick up with this if you want, because that's where I was going with it. That's where I was headed with this as well. I was with my father when he took his last breath. The qualities that preceded it and surrounded it had a very surreal, hyper-intimate depth to them. An initiation of sorts to get a brief glimpse beyond the veil. Did being with Bud when he passed change you in ways that became important for the work you did with surviving death? Yeah, I mean, it really, it really did have a profound effect on me, Stuart. You use the word surreal. That was, that's, if I had to put one word on that experience, that would be the one. I mean, you don't know that until it happens, but even leading up to the moment it, 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 there was a sacredness about the process. So whenever I would walk into his apartment, which was, he lived a block away from me at that time. I felt like I was walking into like a, a sacred space. It was quiet. It was profound. It was spiritual. You know, it was almost like going into a church or a temple where this very sensitive process was unfolding. And there were people with Bud that were so, angelic, like we had some helpers that came in because he needed 24-hour coverage, basically. And his daughter and I needed to get some sleep occasionally. And these people that were there with him were like these angels. We, we managed to get the most gorgeous, wonderful women at the end who just felt like these angelic presences. And they were totally giving and, and just focused on, on Bud in a profound way, you'd walk into this space and there was like this sense of a hush and a sacredness. So that was happening. And then 
you, the hospice people were amazing because they knew when things were going to happen. They were able to predict exactly when certain things would happen and when he was probably going to pass, which they were absolutely right. So we we were we were there and we knew it was we were close to the end and in close contact with the hospice people on the phone and everything. Anyway, and that moment where he took his last breath was just so startling because you're just sitting there with him holding his hand watching him slowly breathe he's just lying there he seems peaceful and then suddenly there's just not another breath and it's it's like where is he you know it's like you cannot comprehend because your perception before that last breath was that bud was there and all of a sudden bud isn't there anymore and it, it's a mysterious incomprehensible reality that is hard to, I think to describe. I'm sure you understand it because you were there with your dad and other people who have been with dying people, but I never knew anything about what this would be like because I had never experienced it before. It's hard to put it into words, but it, it just, you just can't comprehend how this could happen, you know, and suddenly he's a body and he's not Bud anymore. And where is Bud, you know? So I don't know how, I'm not describing it that well, but you just can't comprehend that he could just disappear. That's the thing that he could be totally just disappear and be nothing. So that was part of what sort of that my interest in this prior to that moment had been quite intellectual. This made it more personal for me because I had actually experienced this and it, mm. it, had, it had touched me very deeply and it had provoked questions in me about what this actually means and what's actually happening here and how could this be? And so that was another stepping stone that led to my uh, eventually jumping in and, and looking into the question in my book, which actually turned out to be a very personal journey for me, this book. It wasn't only an intellectual journey, but it was a personal journey and experiential journey as well. Yeah. When my dad passed, it was the termination of my intellectual interest in death and dying and the advent of its actual presence. It presenting itself as is rather than how I'd prefer to interpret it. One realization that arrived with that was that we are part of death's reality. It is not part of ours, so to speak. It's not a subset of ours. We are a subset of its home. In a strange way, we're afforded the liberty and the luxury of forgetting that when we incarnate. But being with my dad as he passed dissolved that mirage. Counterintuitively, there was consolation in that presence, that sacred, imminent presence suffused the environment. It was one of the great privileges of my life to be there, but one that I never would have sought out. I wonder if you had any of that. Wow, after the fact, I'm so grateful I got to be there, but I probably would not have sought this experience. Yeah, I mean, I totally, I, I, there was an element of that. There was also an element, to be honest, of just total exhaustion for me. I mean, caring for a dying person is really an overwhelming, difficult person for the, for the one who's doing the caretaking. And this, this had gone on for years with me. I mean, Bud was struggling with, with things for many years. And so, yes, there was, there was totally that. And I think I even realized it more over time how valuable that experience was and i'm we're putting aside right now any any issues of of the emotional reaction to the tragedy of losing somebody i mean there's a whole thread of that when we're not dealing with that right now we're going deeper into the more spiritual realm of what death means and so you know there's also the element of 
coping with telling everybody about it and arranging a memorial. And it just, I think it was more for me after things had settled down a little bit that I was able to connect more with the the sense of gratitude and the value of having had that experience. So yes, you know, one thing to just share, Stuart, which was absolutely phenomenal that happened with Bud is that he had been basically, he for some reason did not really suffer very much those last few weeks of his life, he just basically slept a lot and he had some meds and stuff, but he really was not in pain. Every time he'd woke up, we'd ask him if he was pain and he would indicate that he wasn't, but he also lost the ability to talk. He literally would try to talk and he couldn't. And it was really sad because Bud was such a talker throughout his life, but he couldn't physically talk. And he would just sleep and he was pretty much going into deeper and deeper levels of unconsciousness. He got to the point where he wouldn't, he was stopped eating. And then he got to the point where he would barely even have any water. And we knew the end was near. And the night before he died, he died like on a Sunday, I think afternoon or early afternoon, the night before he died, he suddenly woke up and he had this absolute glow of light in his eyes, in his whole being. He sat up and he could talk perfectly. And he was smiling, you know, and his friend Dave Jacobs was there, who was his close friend and his daughter and me. And he, we gave him, he wanted a little scotch and we gave him a little bite of uh, ice cream, as I recall, or something. And he said, yeah, we said, hey, we're having a party. And he said, yeah, but not for long. And it was like this end of life moment where he was already in touch with that other realm. It's really the, the, the sense of joy and light and beauty that just emanated from him. It was absolutely stunning to us because he had just been this unconscious person who couldn't speak. So suddenly he could speak again. He was happy, radiant. He went back to sleep and he died the next day. And that's one of those experiences you hear about, you know, when I studied um, afterlife, phenomena, you know, those are one of the, these sort of moments that people can have of lucidity right before they, they, they die are really profound and amazing. And sometimes you even get people with Alzheimer's and people, you know, who really have no brain capacity or ability to talk that suddenly get all their, their functionality back right before they, you know, within 12 hours before they die. It's just one of the many things that happen, but that was just the most glorious moment. And it made me feel profoundly grateful to have been a witness to that and to also feel that he was on a journey that was really pretty much okay because of the way he came across in that, in those few moments. I wish I, I wish I'd had a tape recorder. I don't remember everything that we said, you know, but um, it was really, really amazing. Wow. That is so beautiful. I feel so grateful that you shared that experience. In that spirit, I'll briefly share that when my dad passed, something similar happened. He was a conservative Christian. When he thought he was about to pass, he gathered us around him and spoke basically his prepared farewell, which emphasized Jesus, the Bible, of course. Then he went unconscious. But the next day he woke up and was somewhat disappointed to find that he was still alive. <laughs> you know, he joked with us, oh, I'm still here. I guess that must have been a dress rehearsal. Then later, when he was actually beginning passing, he opened his eyes one last time, and his last words to my mother and I were, it's a strange world. 
And my mother and I asked him, what do you mean? What do you mean it's a strange world? And he said, it isn't real. Wow. And the look on his face radiated this bewildered transparency and lucidity. He was seen through everything in this world from the other side. Wow, that's profound. So he was like looking at the other side. Yes. Said that he was in between the two worlds. We were holding his hands and he was on the other side looking over. And as someone who's <laughs> been spiritually promiscuous, roaming all over the mystical and esoteric landscape in my life, this moment with my dad was the single most powerful transmission I've ever received. Wow. That is a beautiful moment. Uh, that's really profound, Stuart. He just died right after he said that? Well, I believe he said that in the early evening and then closed his eyes. They never opened again. And he passed that night, maybe six hours later. Very gradually, his breathing slowed tremendously and then stopped. Yeah, yep. it does. It gradually diminishes. But I do believe I, there's just so much evidence and so many stories like that that, that indicate that at the end of life, we do make that transition into that other realm before our body is fully dead. We might even go there almost like an NDE and your death experience and come back. There's all, you know, there's a lot of research that's been done on end of life experiences. And I touch on some of that in my book, Surviving Death, but there are many profound things that happen that, that suggests that that person is in touch with the other side, if you want to call it that before they, they actually leave their bodies. And it's wonderful, wonderful stuff. It's so, makes you feel like you don't, maybe you don't have to be scared about death, you know, because you really are going to go somewhere else and you're going to touch on that towards the end and you'll know that you're going there. Absolutely. There is such an abundance of evidence for near-death experiences, reincarnation. It seems our hurdles are not around obtaining adequate evidence. Jim Tucker, Division of Perceptual Studies, before him Ian Stevenson, going back half a century, Dean Radin, your work, plenty of evidence. So, how much of the problem is lack of evidence versus people just not admitting the evidence? I mean, they permit the fanciful in quantum mechanics, the miraculous in cosmology. Is there a disproportionate burden of proof for the anomalous versus in the so-called hard sciences? I definitely, I mean, I certainly think that what we might call the weirder stuff or the more subjective or the less veridical stuff, which is how much of it is, is, is not going to be respected, you know, by intellectuals and scientists in the same way that the more evidential stuff is. And even the latter, they don't necessarily want to deal with. I think a lot of it has to do with whether people have had their own experiences in terms of, you know, any kind of personal re resonance with this. And the people that have had their own experiences, they don't even question it. And I think what I was trying to do in my book was do a combination. And I really think that my book offers a lot more evidence, obviously, because it's a book, than the series did on, on Netflix, which was very focused more on people's individual journeys with the material and things like that. But I feel like, I mean, if, um, I think the, the data, the information in my book should be enough to convince anybody who hasn't had experiences. But then the question becomes, there's nothing to motivate somebody to look into this, to read a book like mine, unless they have some openness to it in the first place. 
So I don't think it's so much a matter of, oh, they look at it and then they dismiss it. I think it's more a matter of they just don't go there at all. The skeptics and the, the scientific community basically just don't spend the time that is required to really get into this. You have to spend time researching it and reading and studying, just like with UFOs, you know. If you're not willing to make that journey, you're not going to get it. And they have to be motivated to make the journey. And they're not in general for intellectual reasons, but it's when somebody's had an experience that that opens everything up and changes everything for them. Agreed. I love to track the parallels between a UFO experience and a near-death experience. In both cases, perhaps unbidden, but utterly changing the experiencer's worldview. Ontological shock. This is one of the powerful threads we follow in surviving death. Parents of children recalling their past lives. The confirmations begin to stack up. The parent is resistant, refusing to relinquish their worldview, gradually having to do so. Sometimes literally throwing books across the room, saying, this is bullshit. There's no such thing as reincarnation. You know, I'm not going to yield to this. That is what it's like to watch someone's worldview crumble and reform. It's painful. And what's the motivation for doing so when who knows what's on the other side of that event horizon? There be dragons. You know, especially for religious people, Stuart. I mean, you know, they have a set of world, they have their set of religious beliefs, and they don't necessarily include reincarnation as part of what's in that reality. And in the, the chapter in my book that I wrote about James Leininger, the little boy who remembered being a World War II pilot, who was also covered in the, in the, uh, the series on Netflix, I invited, I, I wanted to document just what you said, that transition a change of worldviews the, the, of the, the parent being confronted with something, resisting it, and then surrendering to it, then learning something from it. And so I invited the, the father of James Lining, her name's Bruce, who was the one that resisted it the whole distance of, of, you know, he spent years investigating everything his child said so that he could prove him wrong because he was not going to accept that this could possibly be a case of reincarnation. And so I asked him to write little excerpts for me, which I integrated to write for me. And I integrated it into my chapter describing the case so that you could read uh, Bruce's responses, reactions, and you can see his transformation as the whole thing unfolds. And so I thought it was a really important component. I'm glad you brought that up because I think these cases are really more a journey for the parents than they are for the child. The child doesn't know what's going on. They just have their memories. And they might be tormented or haunted by them. And then by the time they're five or six, they're moving on to other things. And they don't even remember the stuff later on. So it's really more about the parents. And I thought it was really interesting for me that I'm glad that, you know, I I loved documenting Bruce's journey with all of this. What did this mean for him? How did he handle it? How did he come through at the other end to integrate it with his religious beliefs. He actually came to see that it was not in contradiction. And he was some kind of, you know, fundamentalist Christian tradition. I don't remember which one, but he was able to see that it was not in contradiction to his beliefs and to integrate it. And anyway, that journey was really profound. And then with the second case of Ryan Hammonds, who I also covered extensively in my book and was part of the Netflix series, Again, it was the dad. It's usually the moms who are a little more open to this than the dads. His dad was a police officer. So he was the one that threw the book across the room that you just described. <laughs> he came he came around a lot more quickly than Bruce did because 
the Hammonds family had Jim Tucker helping them from the beginning, and Jim Tucker was a successor to Ian Stevenson at the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of, of Virginia. And he came and met with the family pretty early on and was there with them. And then eventually they were able to document everything that James, that Ryan had said. But so his dad was kind of along for the ride, but he was also um, the one that said, you know, that yeah, exactly, it's, this is bullshit. You know, what are you talking about? And he took the book and threw it across the room. So yeah, the journeys are really, really significant. I think especially for Bruce Leininger because he went on his real spiritual journey with the whole thing and really had to confront something and come to terms with it at a level that Ryan's dad really didn't. His dad, Kevin, just sort of got, okay, you know, it wasn't as big a deal for him. But anyway, it's a, it's a very transforming and often very, very painful thing for these parents until they understand what's going on and they see their kid having these horrible nightmares and, you know, craving to reunite with a previous mother. That's not something any parent wants to go through. It's very, very difficult for the parents. So people need to understand that, oh, I wish this would happen to my kid or, oh, this is so cool. It's really not. It's very traumatic for a family when, it, when a child is kind of obsessed with these past life memories and all the emotion that goes along with them. You captured lightning in a bottle, the tempo and depth with which we are able to follow Bruce and others expanding their being to accommodate a new reality is powerful and rare. It gives others an exemplar, an orienting cartography for navigating these enigmas. The second thing is that is a microcosm of what our society is struggling to grow into with UIPs, UFOs, near-death, whatever. So as tuning forks, these are important cultural contributions, beacons for others. Are you able to enjoy that or celebrate it, luxuriate in it a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I do. What I really do enjoy, Stuart, is the fact that both the book and the series gave people permission who have had their own experiences already to feel like, okay, I can talk about it now. Okay, my, my experiences are valid. You know, all these other people are having the same thing. And look, there's even scientists that are studying these things. So it's, it's, it's not just about giving the information to the world at large and letting people have to kind of reor reorganize their realities, but it's about the people who are already involved with this on an experiential level, but have always felt that they couldn't talk about it or they'd be ridiculed or it was, you know, it was too weird to talk about. And all these people now, I think it's really helped them feel comfortable acknowledging their own experiences, making them part of their lives, integrating them into their lives, allowing themselves to take those experiences and get meaning from them. And I, I know that's happening because I've heard from so many people since the, especially since the series came out, but I was a whole round of people too when my book came out, telling me that very thing, that they wanted to just share their experiences with me. They often say, I've never been able to talk to this to anyone before. And they'll tell me about their experiences. And they'll also say, well, now I feel like this is something that's okay to talk about. So I think it's making a contribution on that level too. It's, it's both. It's, it's an intellectual exercise for people like Bruce who had it happen to him directly, but even people who have never had experiences but are willing to take on the information. I mean, I have had people who read my book say, who just 
say this completely changed my life. I'm like terrified by what this means, or I'm, it's so profound. I don't know how to, how to deal with it. Or, and these are people who have never had experiences on their own, but I really do feel for the realm of people who have had direct encounters and direct experiences and, you know, have come up against this other reality personally and have felt they had to suppress it. And so I just, every time I hear from somebody who's been affected by this in that positive way, I always feel just that one message makes all the work worth it because that's why I've written it. And the other component that's really important to me also for the surviving death material is, and this is a big one, is that it helps people who are grieving. I mean, people who, that's another body of people that I've heard a lot from are people who have lost a loved one or people who have a friend who has lost a loved one. They've shared my book with that person or they've used the book themselves in their own cases of grief. And it's really, really helped them cope with grief and with loss because it shows them for obvious reasons. It shows them that life goes on and that they, and that, that it also opens the door to them being able to directly communicate with their loved one after they've died. And that might be something we could talk about more, but that, that possibility for people of not only just knowing that their loved one has survived death, but also that they might even be able to communicate with them can be absolutely radically life-changing for anybody who is grieving. And that's a whole other, you know, it's a whole other positive effect that this work has had. We discuss that and much more in part two of our conversation with Leslie Kane. Interstellar ectoplasm gasm. Quote, I regard consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. We cannot get behind consciousness. End quote. That famous triplet of sentences from Nobel Prize winning physicist Max Planck has been ringing in me this week, specifically in relation to an event that occurred 359 million years ago. Hear me out. Or more precisely, hear Brian Fields out, astrophysicist at University of Illinois. He published a study suggesting that the late Devonian mass extinction event could have been caused by the supernova of a dying star 65 light years from Earth. He's got science reasons, with science ducks lined up in empirical rows. But that's not what interests me. What interests me is combining those two conceptual notes. First, that Planck said, quote, I regard consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. We cannot get behind consciousness, end quote. Second, that Brian Fields says, the death rattle of a neighboring star may have caused 19% of all families and 50% of all genera to go extinct. So, A, if matter is derived of consciousness, and B, a supernova denuded Earth 359 million years ago, then C, Godhead gives good phenomena. Oh, what do you mean that doesn't get to? You go get your own syllogism, motherfucker. This one is spoken for. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one -on -one work with me, Stuart Davis. 
Sessions focus on transpersonal hypnotherapy, creativity as a spiritual path, and anomalous experience. Go to theliminalmuse.com to book a session or check the show notes. And the Experiencer Group, a private membership site for those who've encountered anomalous phenomena, including near-death, precognition, contact with non-human entities, and much more. The Experiencer Group offers private support groups, exclusive content, and live events. Check the show notes to become a member and get one month free. To hear part two of our conversation with Leslie Kane, become a patron. What's hidden behind that paywall for patrons? Patrons get synchronicities such as riding in a stretch limo winding its way down Mulholland Drive as that very line from Tom Petty's free-falling song comes on the radio. I want to glide down over Mulholland. The limo driver turns around to give patrons a knowing look and it's David Lynch. He rolls down his window and shouts directions to a mascara-streaked Naomi Watts on the side of the road. Acting is reacting, Naomi. Patrons get starring roles in multi-episode arcs of HP hit series Entourage beginning in July 2004. Patrons may touch and be touched by Turtle in character. That's true. Patrons get the vaccine, the safe vaccine. Patrons get pregnant or sterilized or both. Patrons get flat feet and don't have to go to war. Patrons receive effigies of free listeners which perfume the environ with scents of sage when burned. Click the link in the show notes to become a patron.
gives good phenomena.